today we begin a sermon series on four great gospel truths. A.W. Tozer once said, he's a theologian, uh, one of my favorite theologians, he said, the single most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think about God. And, and I remember thinking, could that be true, that, that my right thinking about God is actually like a set of lenses that I view myself through, that I view the whole world, time, uh, money, parenting, marriage? Is it true that if I could see God accurately, if I could view Him with clear biblical eyes, that that would change the way I view everything else, including my own thoughts? That is absolutely true. And so for the next four weeks, I want to spend some time developing a biblical, accurate view of how God is, who God is, and how that plays out in our lives. You guys know the song from Sister Hazel way back in the day, if you want to be somebody else, what are you going to do? Change your mind? Come on, somebody work with me here, right? right? That'll be playing through your mind all, all through the day. But Look, the truth is that unless you can see God with clear eyes, you won't see anything else with clear eyes. It's absolutely true that your feelings affect your thoughts. Anybody debate that? Your feelings affect your thoughts. You can even say it like this. Feelings affect my thoughts. Thoughts and feelings affect my decisions. Decisions affect my direction, and then my direction affects my destiny, right? So it's very important what you think about. That is affecting a lot of how you view yourself and the world. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter uh, 8, he said, or John chapter 8, he said, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, it's important for us then that we should take some time. Uh, I was raised in a uh, tradition that taught that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, after having laid down his perfect life for us, that that gospel message was for non-believers. And it is for non-believers. Absolutely it is. But guess who else needs to hear that gospel message? Those who have already believed it need to continue on eating from it like a feast at a banquet that you are continually longing for. Not your stomach, but your inner person, your inner man needs this truth. And so today we're going to be looking at Psalm 131. If you have a Bible, you can join us there or you can just look to the screen and the verses. It's only three verses, but we're going to focus in on this great truth that God is great and because God is great I don't have to be in control God is great so I don't have to be in control you know there's a I heard a second grade teacher one time say I don't have a single child in my class who can say their ABC's every last one of them can sing their ABC's right and so when we look at these, uh, this psalm, Psalm 131, we need to know that it is a psalm of ascent. And some of you have heard of these psalms of ascent. These are like a playlist that the nation of Israel would sing these psalms 
on their way to Jerusalem three times a year so that they could go and join a feast in Jerusalem. And what would happen there? They would eat and drink and remember a promise from God. And so these songs that they would sing as they were climbing up to Jerusalem, if you've ever been there, you know that as you get close to Jerusalem, you're in a bus usually with a bunch of other people, and your ears start popping as you get closer to Jerusalem because you are ascending. And you can imagine these ancient pilgrims walking with family members, extended family, and as they were climbing, ascending up to Jerusalem, someone in the family would start off with a song that they would sing. And these were songs that they would sing as a nation three times a year coming into Jerusalem. What would these songs do? These songs which set in place a set of truths about who God is. They would be a catechism, if you want to say it that way. This would be uh, a way of catechizing your children because they would have these truths lodged through songs into their hearts. And they would remember them. I don't know how I know this. Well, I do know how I know this. I don't know when it happened. I know the preamble to the Constitution. <laughs> I know the order of the planets. You know how I know them? Schoolhouse rock. <laughs> right? I, I can absolutely get through a test with that. I, I don't know that I could repeat it. I could if you bear with me long enough. But I could get there and I could tell you these things. I know about adverbs and conjunctions. And if you've done Schoolhouse Rock, so do you. Because the songs lodge it somehow deep inside the core of who you are. Well, Psalm 131 is a psalm of ascent. It's written by David. And it's like you're looking into his personal prayer journal. In fact, as we look at these psalms of ascent, they not only speak to us, they speak for us. Hear these words from Psalm 131. It says, O Lord... My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. These great truths will give you rest when you not only assent to them, when not only you agree with them, but that you actually hold them in the core of your heart so that when the storm blows in, these truths start to anchor your heart. Let's just start back at the beginning. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. You know what? You need to understand that David is writing this as an anointed, powerful, wealthy king who has seen a lot of ups and downs. He's seen a lot of victories. He's seen a lot of defeats. We typically know of the victory between him and Goliath, uh, and we celebrate that as we rightly should. But there are great failures also the failure with Bathsheba in sin, but also there was a time when David was so scared and so alone and so frightened that he lied to steal Goliath's sword and some food. He'd gotten so uh, turned around 
that one time he's scribbling on the walls of a gate, letting the spit come down his mouth into his beard so that he looks like he's crazy. Now, this is the great giant slayer, right? This is the great psalmist, right? Absolutely, this is him, but this is also a man who's seen terrible defeats. And what does he say as he looks back at his life? He says, you know, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up too high. My eyes are not raised too high. You know what he's saying? I'm not self-reliant. I'm not dependent on my own money or my own wits or my own strength to face the storms of life. I'm leaning on you. I'm no longer proud and thinking I can take on the world. My eyes are not lifted too high. I don't occupy my mind with things that are, are too great for me, too marvelous for me. It's a way of saying, God, I don't believe that I have capacity outside of you to navigate the, the complexities of life, and nor do I need to. David would never refer to himself in third person, right? You, you ever hear people do that and you think, are they being serious right now? Because that sounds kind of funny. You know, when Robert comes into the building, me speaking, when Robert comes into the building, Robert knows what he's going to do. Like, you go, can, are we talking about you right now? Because that's pretty self-important to refer to yourself in the third person. David is saying, not me. Uh-uh. I'm not a big man. I'm not a great man. In front of you, God, I don't lift my eyes too high. There are complexities that belong to God and God alone. There are responsibilities for me in the midst of God's sovereignty, but there are other things like the rotation of the planets that have nothing to do with me. I can't change them. I can't make that happen. And so he says, my eyes are not lifted too high. They're not lifted up. These things are too marvelous for me. You guys ever remember this? Like, I was raised in the 70s. Um, I don't know when you were raised, but when you were a kid and you went on vacation with your parents, and uh, your biggest responsibility at that point was to claim your portion of the back seat. I had an older brother and sister, and so we lived in Salina, Kansas, but our grandparents were both in North Texas, one in Italy, Texas, one in Cleveland, Texas. And so in the midst of trying to get the ride figured out. Here was my biggest fight. This part of the back seat belongs to me, so don't put your leg on it, right? That was, that was my biggest concern. And tell you what I wasn't worried about, how many gallons we had left in the gas tank, where we were gonna stop for lunch. I didn't think about the crumple zone of that enormous Oldsmobile car that we had. It probably didn't have a crumple zone because it was just gonna go through anything it hit. Right? My biggest concern was just how much back seat I got. Not is my are my parents budgeting well enough to think through how do we get from Salina, Kansas to Cleveland, Texas? No. That's not for me to think about at seven years old. Can you imagine if right now your kid on vacation was really worked up and upset, upset and unable to enjoy anything because they were worried that you haven't budgeted properly. And, and you're, 
Your, your 10, 12-year-old wants to say, okay, before we go anywhere, can I just ask you a few questions? Um, do you know where you're going? Do you have a good map in case the Google map thing doesn't work? Do you have one of those fold-out ones? Some of you are like, what, what are you talking about fold-out ones? Yeah, they used to have that stuff on paper. It's terribly confusing, you know? <laughs> but, but can you imagine a 10, 12-year-old who could not rest easy because they were worried that you didn't have it in control, that you hadn't thought it through, wouldn't you kind of want to go, you know something, buddy? Why don't you sit back there and worry about getting to the next level of your game and let me handle the driving and the navigating? I've got this. Now listen to me closely, friends. God's got you. That thing that you're afraid of, that thing that you're upset about. You know, God's got you. He did not sacrifice his son on a cross and then become stingy about seeing to the needs that you have, the emotional, physical, spiritual needs that you have. God has got you. And you don't need to occupy yourself with things that are too high for you too marvelous for you. We know that if King David, from his vantage point, he didn't even know uh, about the fullness of the Messiah, as we can look back and see, from where he sat, he said, God, I'm not going to give all my best energy and anxious thoughts to controlling things that are not mine to control. They belong to you. So my eyes are not lifted too high. Worry is really like saying to God, you really haven't thought this through. So maybe I should. Maybe I'll fret. Maybe I'll scheme. Maybe I'll plan. Maybe I'll plot. Maybe I'll do what it takes to make sure that I am secure. Right? And that's really just sin. The tricky thing for me is when I realize that God's love for me sometimes includes suffering. It's hard for me when I see that God wants to kill something in me that is worldly and self-reliant, and yet it's so familiar and comfortable to me that it feels like he's killing me when he takes it. That's hard. God's love is so good that he is willing to allow us to go through things we would never sign up for so that he might show us who he really is. David says, I don't occupy my mind with these things that are too great and too marvelous for me. I just want to read this, and I want you to just, if, if you're able, just let these words wash over you. Another psalm from David. Let these words just soak into your heart. David says in Psalm 139, Oh Lord, you've searched me, and you've known me. I just... Just put yourself in that. God, you have searched me. You have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it all together. Now this is beautiful. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. 
Such knowledge is what? It's too wonderful for me. It's too high, and I can't attain to it. Where will I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall lay hold of me. If I say that the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me is night, even the darkness is not dark to you, but it's as bright as day, for the darkness and the light is the same with you. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Gosh, how wonderful. Now, when, when you start to try and get your arms around that set of truths, here's what happens. You start to realize, I'm really not that big. I'm really not that powerful. Even if I had millions of dollars, it still would not give me the peace that these verses speak about. What starts to happen is you will measure the size of your problem next to the vastness, the greatness, the glory, the beauty, the power of God. Your problems are still real. They're just now measured accurately by the grandeur, by the greatness of God. Now, the inverse is true also, right? If you don't know that God is great, you're going to start trying to control everything and everybody that scares you in the slightest way. You're scared, and so you're trying to be in control. Ask yourself this question right now. What are the things I really try to control in my life? Right? Because those things, and I'm not going to tell you that you should not be wise, and you should not be planning, that you should not be uh, as capable as you know how to be. But listen, friends, there are things that are your responsibility, and there are things that are not. And there are times, especially in a time of waiting, when you want to just get a hold of the knobs and twist the dials and you want to make things go, baby, go, and you can't, and you need to be reminded that God is great. And because God is great, you don't have to be in control. Well, that sounds good. How do we get there? I mean, if anybody wants to sign up for that, I would think. Let me not just agree with that, but let me embrace that. Let that truth embrace me, that God is great so I don't have to be in control, that I can say like David, that my eyes are not lifted too high. Well, look at verse 2. He says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now here's something that David does. He gives us a word picture. You have this physical flesh, this touchable, huggable, puncturable me that is here. But inside of me is my immaterial self, my soul. The real me, if you want to say it that way. C.S. Lewis said, you are a soul and you have a body. 
not you have a body, or you are a body, you have a soul. It's the other way around. There's an immaterial part of you that has to learn to grow into and mature into a calmed and quiet soul. So how do I do that? Well, he gives us this word picture. Like a weaned child with its mother. A weaned child is my soul within me. Well, I'm not a mom, but I did see this a couple of times. <laughs> that a weaned child is a child that has gone from breast milk to solid food, or from formula to solid food. So it is a process of maturing physically, biologically, from needing one thing at one season to growing out of that and needing something else at another season. Because infants need things to make them good and chubby, that two and four-year-olds don't need because they're growing and they have teeth and they have the ability to receive solid food. And so what was at one time very comforting and nourishing to the infant, it now grows and matures into another season where those things are no longer needed. Now I want you to think about what David has just said. I've calmed and quieted my soul. When before... I was not like a weaned child. I was needing that as an infant that I could get from my mother, spiritually speaking. Now I've matured into these areas where I'm learning who God is. I'm learning to trust in the providence of God. I didn't know that when I was brand new at this. People had to hold my hand a lot, spiritually speaking. They had to remind me of certain things that that were absolutely right and true for the brand new believer, but as you mature into those things, you start to find the storm of life blowing in on your life. You start to see that things are coming that you don't want, that you'd rather control and keep away from, but you can't. And so rather than needing to just panic and freak out and look for someone else to help you just get through that moment. You learn how to turn to God. You learn how to turn to the Word of God. You learn how to ask Him to give you that calm and quiet, quiet spirit. You're maturing into the truths that someone else was feeding you before, and now they're yours. You've started to believe the promises of God. Not because somebody else said it, not because somebody else told you, but because you have experienced in your own heart, in your own life, that God is great. And that God is in control. And that I can trust Him at this season like I trusted Him before. That He really will do what He said He would do. I had mentioned before that money has this capacity to kind of masquerade as God, right? I heard Matt Chandler say this this week while I was getting ready for this. He said, you know, money... Money kind of tends to trick us into thinking that if we had enough of it, we could breathe deeply. We could go, ah, oh, good. I'm fine now because I can write a check. I can go out and purchase this or I can move these things around. I can surround myself with these barrier walls that keep me safe. Only problem is, if you know, <laughs> I know a few wealthy people. In fact, one of my best friends in life, he sold off at 35, his chunk of a business, his chunk equated to about $200 million. And I said to him, I said, all right, so I want to know something. We're friends, right? So I can ask this, right? What happened when that, you got that check? He goes, 
It wasn't a check, Robert. It was a money transfer. I was like, well, you know what I'm asking. What happened? What, what, what did you... Once you knew it was there, what went through your mind? I said, I know this is a really private question, but he goes, no, I know exactly what you're asking. I know exactly what you're asking. And the truth is, I've never felt more insecure in my life. He said, I went to a Dallas Stars game that night. Uh, I drank too much beer, and as I drove home, I saw the lights flashing behind me. I got pulled over. I got put in jail that night. I called my wife and said, hey, she said, I'm not coming. You can stay the night there. He said, so I'm sleeping in a jail, and I got millions of dollars in the bank. And he said, it's as if God was saying to me, I am your security. I am your safety. He said, and from that point on, I didn't know for sure who my friends were. I didn't know who, do these people really like me or do they just want to present some deal to me? You know, because they want to go into business. They don't even know me. And it, and it was an interesting thing for me because I love this man. He's been a great friend through the years. Um, our kids grew up kind of, in, you know, at the same age, you know, and it's like, this guy was, has been a good friend to me all the way through. Money can trick you into thinking that if you have enough of it, enough of it, your soul will be like a weaned child within you. It won't. It won't. Only God can give you this. Only God can say to you, these truths that you learned as an infant really are yours now. You can count on me. I will be who I said I would be. I will be your solid rock. I will be the anchor of your soul. You can trust me, especially when the storm blows in, and you can't do anything but wait. Waiting is hard. Waiting means that I tried everything I had and it didn't work. Now I just got to wait. Will God be for me who I hoped he would be? Will God do for me who what I, I've seen him do for others? And some of you have been waiting a long time for something. Waiting to see, will God show up? He's going to show up. The waiting is necessary or he wouldn't make you wait. He has a reason for the waiting. And the truth is that sometimes this weaned child thing that David is describing here, it's a hard process. From what I understand, it's a hard process biologically for mom and child to do that breaking, that separating. It's hard for both of them because it's just convenient. Just keep doing what you're doing. Doesn't matter if you're 14, you know? No, yeah, that's a problem, right? We want to see a child wean from their mother and start to eat solid food by himself, right? Not just continually need the mom to provide, no. You're big enough, you do it, right? This is the maturing process in Christ that happens in our lives. And friends, hear this. All, all of me, every part of the shepherd in me wants you to know this. You will not mature in Christ by yourself. You need the body of Christ with you. You're not going to sit in a room and read the Bible and meditate on it and grow and mature into a man or woman of God apart from friendships that stretch and challenge and pull you deeper into Christ. This is a group project, this maturing in Christ. That's why we have something called gospel community. I will always be inviting you into gospel community because I want you to develop friendships that will remind you that God is great and you don't have to be in control. And you're going to hear that from me, but then you're going to start hearing it from others. And you'll grow and you'll mature and you'll become a mature disciple of Jesus as you engage in these friendships. All right? So David says, this is me. 
growing in Christ. Well, he wouldn't have said Christ, but growing in the promises of God. But here's why we want to point forward. It's verse 3. There's something beautiful that happens in verse 3. He now says, from his own experience of learning and maturing and growing, now he points that truth outward. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. Now this is something really beautiful to me in my heart. Israel, <laughs> learn what I've learned is what he's saying. As your king, as your shepherd king, the psalmist, I'm telling you, learn to hope in God. Now and all the way home. Both now in this moment and all the steps of your journey until you arrive safely at home. God sees where you are. Don't put your hope in something other than God. God is just far wiser and far more capable than we would ever imagine. His capacity to use our decisions, good and bad, to move us forward in sanctification would just absolutely blow our minds. God is at work through your good and bad days, through your struggles and your joys, through your tears and your laughter. God is at work sanctifying you, shaping you, teaching you to trust Him more. So hope in Him now, at this moment, and forevermore. So let me ask you this question. Let me pry a little bit. Let me dig in and ask you to just, just be completely honest between you and the Lord right now. What are the things that you're most scared of letting control to God in? Letting go and giving God the, the, the full balance of God. I'm going to trust that you can control this better than me. Is that a hard thing for you to put a finger on? For a lot of people, I'll say for me, it's my kids. Man, if I can arrange marriages, I, I still do it. Because there's almost no chance. I mean... My oldest married a great guy. His name is Zach. I, I, I want God to give us more Zachs and one Zachina. Uh, Zachietta? I don't know. But it's, I don't want them to suffer. I, I want, if, I could, if I could go do the suffering for them and let them have the advantage of it, I would. Right? But you've got to get, and I've got to get okay with the fact that we live in this broken world. And God is sovereign. God is great. God is, I hate saying he's a master chess player because that's like too belittling of God. But like he, he understands the complexity of the board in ways that we don't. And he's so good. He's just so kind. And if I could, I would try to protect my kids from suffering. But if you've ever seen uh, someone that's been oversheltered, um, it's not good for them. It's not good for their soul. In fact, we can trust God because he allowed his son to suffer. I want you to hear this. The gospel beauty of this passage is that if you ever watch the movie The Passion of the Christ, one of the things that so quickly they got right was when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and John comes up to Peter and says, what is wrong with him? Never seen him like this. They had never seen Jesus upset like that. They'd never seen him frightened like that. 
I mean, they'd seen him angry. They'd seen him in full control of a storm or a, a demonic spirit. They'd seen him turn over tables. They'd never seen him scared. Never seen him frightened. They'd never seen him upset like that. Why was he so upset? Because he was laying down his life. He was at the crossroads in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross. Will I go through with this? Father, I don't want this. Let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours. I don't want to go through this. I don't want to experience this. If there's another way, then let me take the other way. And yet your will be done. Friends, you can trust God with control of your life because Jesus laid down his life. He went into chaos. He went into uncertainty. He went into fear and loneliness so that we could be included, so that we could be safe, so that we could sit on the back seat and let dad drive, that we could just claim our spot in the back seat and we could let him figure out lunch and gas and how to get there. He will not fail us. If he gave his son, how will he not give him also, also with him all things freely to us? We can trust him. I want you to pray with me before we receive the Lord's Supper together.